The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe the good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. This is the word of the Lord. This past week, has there been a time where you walked into a room and completely forgot why you walked into that room? Has that happened to anybody in the last week or last month? Have you just kind of, you know, maybe you're booking it, right? You're very intentional. You're very deliberate. And you come into the office or whatever, and you think, why am I here? What did I come in here for? What was my purpose in coming? You know how it is. You have to sort of backtrack and try to figure out... uh, Maybe you go to the last room you were in and you hope that your memory is jogged by something there so that your purpose and your haste and your intentionality is rewarded by whatever that thing that was so important for you to get five minutes ago was. I used to think that was a senior moment thing, but I've realized it's not a senior moment. You don't have to be a senior to have that. As a middle-aged person, I can attest to that. And also as a parent, I can attest to that. How many of you parents have had that little voice from the back seat of the car ask for the 10th time? where are we going? (laughs) Which is just a more sophisticated way of asking the question, why am I in this car right now? Right? It's easy to forget where we are, where we're going. It happens to all ages, these big questions. Uh, We always kind of, we can ask them at any stage in our life, what am I doing here? I've forgotten. Those 80s philosophers, the talking heads, had a lyric about it. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? It's easy to forget. Much of our lives are lived on autopilot. And that's okay. It's actually necessary. If you were hyper-focused all the time on whatever you were doing, you probably could only be awake about two hours a day. It'd be exhausting. But every so often, it's helpful to step up and ask some of those bigger questions and remind ourselves, why am I here? What's the purpose? Maybe you walked into this room this morning on autopilot, and you sat in your chair, and you hadn't really thought about, why did I get in my car? Why are we gathered here? And if that's you, if you autopiloted yourself into this room this morning, you've come on the perfect Sunday because we're going to talk about why we're here, who we are, what's the purpose. So last week we wrapped up our sermon series from Romans chapter 8. We call that the greatest chapter in the Bible. Next week we're going to start in on our Advent series and we make no apologies that it's not even Thanksgiving yet. We're just doing it. That starts next week. But in between, we thought it would be helpful to ask the bigger questions, just to step back and ask, why are we here? Who are we? So if I had to sum up everything that I'm going to say to you today from this text, I'd put it this way. Remember who we are and why and act accordingly. Remember who we are and why and act accordingly. We're going to ask three questions as we walk through this text. The first is, who are we? And then, why are we who we are? And finally, what then? So first, who are we? 
As God's church, who are we? Peter begins to answer that question with the little three-letter word in the beginning of verse 9. And I hope you're looking at your Bible so you know what word that is. With that word, he is making a contrast with what came before. In verses 7 and 8, Peter talks about the disobedience of those who do not believe that Jesus is the Christ of God. He says that they stumble. They walk in darkness. Their rejection of Christ has consigned them to a life of stumbling and eternal alienation from God. But at the beginning of verse 9, Peter says, but... That's not you. That's not who we are. If you believe that Jesus is God's Messiah, the Savior of all and Lord of all, you no longer live stumbling in darkness. You have a new identity. You're a new thing. This Halloween, uh, my daughter, who's three, was a butterfly. And one of the reasons she loved being a butterfly was that she could wrap herself up in her little wings and become a chrysalis, which is not a word I knew when I was three. We called them cocoons when I was a kid. Anyway, she wrapped herself up into a chrysalis, and then she could pop out her butterfly wings and say, trick or treat. Like a caterpillar changes into a butterfly and is almost a completely new thing, our identity has been changed into almost a completely new thing. But what? What are we changed into? We are now, according to Peter, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. Now, each of those tells us about who we are as God's church, but all four of them have something in common. They have a common characteristic. I wonder if you picked up on it as we were reading it earlier. Let me read it again. See if you can hear this repeated characteristic. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, And a people for God's possession. So did you hear it? Each of those four lenses shares the characteristic that it is one thing consisting of many. It's one consisting of many. We are individually part of this greater thing. See, that's why this is important. The question about identity, who we are, is answered here not only for us individually, but it's answered for us together. Our new identity as individuals in Christ is inseparable from our new identity together as the church. In fact, the you there in verse 9 is plural. In the Greek, it is technically, but y'all are a chosen race. (laughs) You singular on your own in your living room can have a real saving relationship with Jesus Christ. But you, singular, on your own, in the living room, are not a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. See, this is part of why the Lord taught us to pray, our Father, our Father who is in heaven. We were remembering with the very first word of the Lord's Prayer that He is the Father of all the church. He's our Father. He's not just my Father, though He is. But he's our father, Redeemer Community Churches. And he's not just Redeemer Community Churches' father, though he is, but he's the father of all of his people throughout space and time. This is part of what we're trying to remember every week when we pray for other churches in the pastoral prayer. We want to be reminded that we are not alone and that we're part of this bigger body 
that is God's people, the totality of God's people across space and time. One of the things that I am hoping to do this morning as I'm talking to you from this text is explain a little bit about why we do some of the things that we do. So this understanding that it is one in many is also behind the choice of what songs we sing. I don't know if you noticed, but a lot of times we, we try to sing about us together. Come let us worship our King were the first words we sang this morning. Hear the call of Christ our captain. Christ the shore of our salvation. And a little later this morning we'll sing how firm a foundation ye saints of the Lord. Or maybe you'll sing y'all saints of the Lord. I don't know what you're going to do. If I can put it sort of crassly, Christianity is a team sport. We are together. Yes, it is vital that each one of us has an individual saving relationship with Jesus Christ. It's absolutely vital you have a personal relationship with Christ. But we're saved as individuals into the body of Christ called the church. He died for you. Yes, you, even you individually. He loves you as an individual more than you could possibly imagine. But he has done these things, died for you, in order to bring you into the new unity called God's church, this new people. And therefore, we gather together each week to see each other, to just see each other. You know, you have a ministry of showing up every Sunday. Just by seeing each other, we're encouraged. We're here to sing to each other, to receive the word and the bread together, to be reminded of who we are together by God's grace. You know, it's even why we practice church membership corporately. This is why we vote as members on new members, because we're together the body of Christ, the church of Christ. So the one and the many, let's go a little deeper into this and look through these four lenses that Peter has here. I'm not going to look at each one individually. We'll look at the first one and then the last three kind of grouped together because that's how it falls out in the Old Testament. Every one of these four things pulls on a thread from the Old Testament. Peter's not making these things up. These aren't new. He's drawing from the Old Testament to say what is true of us, the church. So first, we are a chosen race. We are, by God's grace and for his glory, a chosen race. Now, the original context of that language back in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verse 6, and Isaiah 43, verse 20, the chosen race is who? It's the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, also known as the Jews. But Peter who's ethnically Jewish, is writing to churches in a predominantly Gentile or non-Jewish area. We know that from the first verse of this book, 1 Peter 1, 1. So here we have a Jewish person saying that the promises to the Jews are now fulfilled for his Gentile non-Jewish audience. That is actually revolutionary. That is an epoch change in the history of the world. What this means is that Peter is saying, in Christ, God has joined both Jews and Gentiles together into one chosen race, one elect people. In Christ, Paul says in Galatians, there's no longer Jew or Greek, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ, Paul says in Ephesians, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. God's church is one elect race in Jesus Christ. Jesus brings together groups of people who have nothing in common, who historically are at odds against each other, and he brings them together in one new humanity. 
And he's done that with the Jews and Gentiles. And he's done it throughout history, bringing groups who are at odds at each other, with each other into the one family. These promises that used to be reserved only for the descendants of Abraham and Isaac are now for people of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation who trust in Jesus Christ. And note here that we are a chosen race. We talked some about the doctrine of election the last couple of weeks, so I won't go deep into that, but I just want to repeat that it is by God's sheer grace that we are part of this new people. It's not because of anything in us. It's not because of anything we are or that we've contributed. It's not that we're the right kind of people to show up in church on a Sunday. It's that he in his grace has lavished grace on us and we're in this new chosen race together. But not only are we a chosen race, we're also a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. Now those three all come from the same verses in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. I want to read those to you, Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6. This is the Lord talking to Moses. He says this, now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine. And you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you, Moses, are to say to the Israelites. So did you hear that? My holy nation, or my my chosen people, my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. So what is a priesthood? Let's start there. What's a priesthood? Priests, in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, they're those who come between God and people. They're the ones who, by their ritual cleansing are able to be near to God. And therefore, if you want to get to God, you go through the priests. Now, this promise in Exodus 19, he made it to the people of Israel. And did you hear that it's conditional? He said, now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant. Now, if you know your Bible at all, or if you are just tracking with how I'm setting up the question, did Israel obey God? No. No, they did not. They did not keep his covenant faithfully. And therefore, this promise did not come true for them. They were a nation that had priests. They were not a kingdom of priests. They were God's holy set-apart nation, but they they fell far short of actual holiness. So this promise, which was conditioned on their obedience, never came true for them. But Peter is saying it has now come true for all of us who are in Christ. We together are a kingdom of priests, meaning you have access to God. We have access to the very creator God in our prayers. We can expect him to hear us. And how often do we come to God in prayer on autopilot, just assuming that's true? And that's okay. God is so gracious He receives that prayer. But let's just step back for a minute and recognize how incredible that is. How amazing that we have that access to God through prayer. We are a kingdom of priests. This is part of why we've been trying to grow in prayer as a congregation this year. We had the 28 days of prayer. We have the weekly Thursday noon prayer gathering. And of course, we have community groups and D groups and all these other areas where we gather together to pray. And I can tell you this, that your pastors, the elders here, they pray for you fervently, individually, as families, as community groups. We pray for you. But you actually don't need us to pray for you. 
Because you can go to God with your own needs. And he hears you just as he hears us. So we join together in prayer because we're together. But we all, as a kingdom of priests, have access to God. It's incredible. We're a holy nation. We sinners are now holy. We're set apart to be God's own people. Now, the whole earth belongs to God, but we especially are his. We're his. We're his own possession. That means he's near to us in a special way. He's near to us in a way he's not near to everybody else. He loves his people in a way he doesn't love everyone else. He has sent his son near to us and continues to walk with us in his love. So I said the idea today is remember who we are and why and act, according to, act accordingly. So that is all who we are. We are a, a chosen people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a kingdom for his own possession, and a holy nation. But we're going to ask the next question, which is why are we who we are? Why are we who we are? And actually, I want to ask two why questions here. The first is, why is this identity ours? Why does it belong to us? And the second is, why do we have it? What's it for? What's the purpose? So why is this new identity ours? In short, we, the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus Christ. Remember that the promise of this blessing to Israel was conditioned on Israel's obedience, but they didn't obey. And yet, there's one Israelite who did obey. There's one descendant of Abraham who kept the law. And of course, that would be Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And I'd like to just briefly show you how every one of these words about our new identity it actually points us to Christ and is fulfilled in Christ. So Jesus Christ is the chosen one. You know, he's the anointed Messiah chosen by God. And he belongs to God because he is God. Jesus Christ is the great high priest who alone was completely holy yet without sin. He is the royal heir to the throne of King David. All of these words about our identity are fulfilled in him. And we get this new identity because when we trust in Jesus spiritually, we are united to him. We are in him. Jesus deserves to be called all the things in 1 Peter 2, 9. We don't, but by trusting in him, we are united to him and all the blessings that he deserves become ours because we're in him. We're united to him. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And no one and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because what he is, what he deserves, is ours by faith, freely because he gives it to us and we're joined to him. That's why this incredible identity is ours. We sinners can be called a holy nation because Christ is our champion and we're in him. Then there's the second why question, which is why has God done this for us? What's it for? If you will, look there at the middle of verse 9, and it says why. We are all these things so that we may proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have this new identity in Christ, and it is so that God will get more glory through our praise. This is amazing. 
We, God gives us, he lavishes his grace on us to make us this new people so that we will genuinely, joyfully experience his blessings and then speak about them. And he gets more glory as we give more praise. This is where we get to go tell it on the mountain. Earlier this year, as Josh already mentioned, we asked, who's your one? Who's one person you might proclaim the excellencies of Christ to this year? So we're hoping to do that together as a church, going out with these excellencies of Christ. It's why we do local outreach. And in our local outreach events, we're always working to serve the community with the community in the name of Jesus. We try to serve alongside the the 5K or the Christmas parade coming up. And we're there so that we can have relationships not only with the people we're serving, but with the people we're serving with. So that as they see us, they might see the joy we have in Jesus and we might tell them about it. You see, the way we try to reach out is because of what's said here, that we're his people for the purpose of proclaiming his praises. So we look at what God has done for us, and then we go and tell somebody. This new identity is available for anybody, for any sinner. And it is for everybody, every race, every language, every background, anyone who will believe in Christ can come in and taste and see that the Lord is good and then go out telling of his goodness. We've been called out of darkness, as Peter says, into God's marvelous light. We were lost in the dark, floundering and participating in what the Apostle Paul calls the unfruitful works of darkness, which are evil. We were in the dark. We were lost. We were blind. We didn't know right from wrong. All our deeds were only evil continually, as it says in Genesis. But God has intervened. He's opened our spiritual eyes. We can now see that he is acting in the world for our good. We can know right from wrong. We can put sin to death and break old habits. We can forgive. We can admit weakness. We have this incredible freedom by living in the the marvelous light of God. Once we were not a people, that means we had no hope, no home, no destiny. But now we're God's people. We have a future. And we have the future that we have with God himself. All of this is so that we may proclaim his praises. All of these blessings so we can proclaim his praises. You know, this is why when we get together on Sundays, we sing. Not every religion gathers to sing. This is why we as Christians get together to sing God's praises. Because our God is a God of mercy and a God of grace. A God who is worthy to be praised. He's worthy to be sung to even by people who don't ever sing otherwise. And they come in and and we feel uncomfortable. He's worthy to be praised. Amen. God is so good that even if we didn't cry out his praises, these cinder blocks one day will. So we get together to sing his praises. And when we freely sing our praises to God, we are proclaiming his praises to each other and to everyone who gathers here. And therefore, we are doing the will of God. I think as Christians, it's often easy easy for me to overcomplicate things. What's God's will for my life? What's he want me to do? Do you know that just by coming here this morning and singing his praises, you have done God's will for your life, at least in those few moments? Because his will for you is to praise his name because he is good and it's for your own joy. And here we've gathered to do just that. This is why we prioritize singing together as a congregation on Sundays. We want you to be able to hear each other. 
because we need to hear from one another. It's why we try to be thoughtful and pastoral and biblical about the lyrics that we sing. When we sing to God together, we're fulfilling his will for our lives. We're participating in joy. The same is true when we hear sermons that lift up Christ from God's word. We trust that the preaching here, we hope that it's helpful to you. Uh, We hope that sometimes it convicts you and challenges you and encourages you and all of those things. But I want you to know that those are secondary goals for us. Our primary goal in preaching is to exalt Jesus Christ, is to lift him up. And insofar as we're doing that and you're participating in that, then we together are proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. So by hearing sermons even that are exalting Christ, we're fulfilling the word of God. It's also why we gather in community groups and discipleship groups, men's and women's and seniors, Bible studies and fellowships, reborn student ministry and have classes for all ages on Sunday. We do all the things that we do for opportunities to proclaim the excellencies of God. We do it in how we teach. We do it in our praying together. We do it in conversation together to proclaim his excellencies because he's good. So why are we who we are? Well, who are we? We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, uh, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. And why? Because of Christ. What's it for? So that we will proclaim God's praises. That's the why. And that leads us to our last question. What then? What then? Three things follow from all of this, and we find them in verses 11 and 12. And I'd like to read verses 11 and 12 for us again now. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Dear friends, dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, They will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. We are this new people by God's grace for his glory so that we might proclaim his excellencies and therefore three things. Number one, let's remember where we are. Let's remember where we are. Peter in verse 11 calls the church three things, dear friends, strangers, and exiles. He starts with dear friends. There, the word in Greek is beloved. Another translation, they put it that way, beloved. There is a beloved connection between brothers and sisters in Christ. No matter where we are in the world, no matter what language we speak, no matter what our background is, there is a belovedness to this one new thing. Beloved. But now where are we? Strangers and exiles, he says. We are strangers and exiles in this world. That could also be translated... Immigrants and refugees, foreigners and aliens. You see, this world is not our home. It won't be until Christ returns and brings the new heavens and new earth here. So don't expect to get too comfortable here. We are God's people, but in this world we'll face trials, amen? We'll suffer. We'll feel like we don't fit in. And we should expect not to fit in. With this incredible new identity, we should expect that in this world, we are going to be the odd people out. We know that no country on earth is our home. We are already God's people, but we're more like Israel in Egypt than we are Israel in the promised land. We're awaiting. Our job is not to fit in. Our job is to conduct ourselves in such a good and distinct way that some will come to Christ because of it. And I've been among you, Redeemer, for less than a year now, almost a year, and I can count 
it's actually a lot of people that have been affected by your good conduct out in the world. People whose lives have been changed, people who have, who have seen Christ in you and have come and, and, and maybe they've worshipped or there's been conversation that has changed them. I'm so encouraged by that. Well done and keep going. Our conduct ought to show Christ to other people. And this is why we send out church planters and missionaries too. A part of our desire together is to proclaim these praises of God and we want to send people out so that there are more outposts of the kingdom of God all over the world where people can hear the, pro- the, the proclaimed excellencies of who Christ is. And so we send people to go and do that in other places. So because of who we are, let's remember where we are, strangers and exiles. And then number two, let's reject our sinful desires. Let's reject our sinful desires. Verse 11 and 12, Peter says, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they'll observe your good works and glorify God on the day he visits. By the way, the day God visits, that's the day of judgment. That's when Christ returns and uh, brings the new heaven with him. So that's the day of visitation that he's talking about. On that last day, that people will observe your good works and glorify God on that day. So your good works, sorry, just to decide real quick, your good works seen by others have an eternal effect on other people's souls. So therefore, let's reject our sinful desires. Together, we have to do this. Together. Desires, what kind of desires? Desires that lead to things like coveting. We need to reject those desires. Desires that lead to greed or hoarding or me first with my money. Desires that lead to addictions or desires that lead to hardness of heart toward other people. Desires that lead to self-righteousness. We must reject any desire that pulls us away from love of God and love of people. In our weekly worship, we have time for confession of sin. And part of why we do that is so that we have this opportunity to name our sins to God. And we hope that by acknowledging our sins, by establishing that practice of specifying our sins to the Lord, we can start to reject the desires that lead to those things. But we know that, of course, doing that in a Sunday service is not nearly enough to put to death sin in our lives. And that's why we get together in community groups and in D groups, so that there's opportunity for you to open up not only about the symptoms of the problem, which would be the manifesting sin, right? Something like maybe the addictions or whatever, that's the manifesting sin, and that needs to be stopped. But, but we can come to community group and D group and confess or, or, or be helped to see what are the desires that are leading to this sin? What am I wanting that's making me numb myself with these other things? Or what am I afraid of that's not in line with the Word of God? You see, so we have to do this together, putting to death, rejecting the sinful desires We have to do it together. We confess our sins to one another and then we walk with each other, pray for each other and help each other. So because of who we are by the grace of God and for the sake of proclaiming his praises, let's be rejecting our sinful desires and let's live out good works instead. And then finally, number three, let's rejoice and praise him. He is excellent and praiseworthy, so let's rejoice and praise him. C.S. Lewis, in his little book, Reflections on the Psalms, does some good thinking on the nature of of praise. He notices there in the book that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless we feel kind of fearful about other people. In other words, you have a great hamburger. You want to talk to people about it just naturally. And maybe the only reason you don't is because they think, why are you talking to me about your hamburger? 
Or you see a beautiful sunset and you want to share it with the whole world. I mean, this is the business model of social media, right? You want to share it with the whole world. And the only reason maybe you don't is you're, you're shy about what you think. See, praise automatically bubbles, uh, or enjoyment rather, automatically bubbles up into praise. And then he says something that I think we can all relate to that at least I was a little convicted by. And it's this, that, that it is the unhealthy people who do the least praising. Like if you look at the balance of our speech, it's the unhealthy people who, who the, the preponderance of their speech, most of their speech is complaining, grumbling, not happy, not comfortable. It's the healthy people who they might give good constructive feedback, they might notice things are wrong, but most of their speech is enjoyment and, and inviting you to revel in that enjoyment with them. Now, if that's true, just generally speaking of praise in the world, praise of any kind of thing, if he's right about that, then how much more healthy is it for us to praise God who's supremely praiseworthy? It's actually the healthiest thing in the world to praise God who's supremely praiseworthy. And it is in praising as we enjoy a thing and we then turn around and praise it to other people, we actually enjoy it even more. We come to the fullness of appreciation for it. And so the way to fullness of joy, the way to consummate our enjoyment of God is to proclaim his praises and his excellencies to other people. And if we flip to the back of the Bible in the end, that's exactly what we see. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, the angels and the saints are gathered around the throne of God. And what are they doing? They're singing God's praises. Revelation 5, 9 and 10. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We get to join in the proclamation, the heavenly proclamation of Christ's praise now, here in this room, every week. We get to join in the heavenly proclamation of the excellencies of Christ every time we get together. And maybe the next time you walk into a room so intently and you forget why you came, maybe that'd be an opportunity for you to just say, well, Lord, I had an agenda. There was something I was going to do, but I don't remember what it was. So let me in this moment praise you for something that happened today. Remember who we are and why and act accordingly. Will you join me now in praising him in prayer? Lord Christ, you are worthy of all praise and glory and honor. Our hearts are cold. It is hard for us to feel the way we ought to feel. And so we trust you. That you have been everything we need to be for us. And we praise you for that. Thank you for giving yourself for us. Thank you for being our creator God who has made such beauty. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for regenerating our hearts, joining us to Christ, joining us together in this new family, the church. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. 
Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.